Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we left off there last week because we talked a lot about Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And uh, we're on verse 28, and it says, When he had said this. So a little bit of context, because as we've seen for Luke for almost 10 chapters now, this is one continuous narrative in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus has laid out a plan for the kingdom. He's laid out a plan for God. He's laid out like what it means to serve God and be a God person. And he's put all of that into these teachings. Chapter 18, just the most recent, always be praying to grow your faith because prayer is an act of faith. The more you pray, the more you exercise your faith. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. When you pray, you're assuming there's a God that listens. And so prayer is a practice of faith. You're supposed to do it persistently. Uh, gave the example of the widow that does that. And there are, and then, he, and then he shows there are people that resist the kingdom of God. There are people that want to be part of the kingdom of God, but their arrogance gets in the way. And then there's some people that do get into the kingdom of God. And it has a lot to do with humbling yourself and realizing you don't have all the answers. Chapter 9 gave us Zacchaeus, which was a combination of all three. Only he finds his way into the kingdom of God, despite being rich, despite not being able to see um, because he's so short. Um, he is able to get it right, and he's able to just become a follower of Jesus Christ. In verses 12 through 27 of this chapter, we have the returning king, we have the servants, and we have the parable with the citizens. And God expects his servants to be about his business. He doesn't expect much, much of the citizens because they're not following him anyways. And so when he gets back, when this returning king gets back, um, he does he deals with the citizens, and he blesses and rewards his servants who are good and faithful. So now that Jesus has clarified the kingdom of God, how to access it, and the expectation of those that are servants, um, he, has, he sets up this entry. And servants like that serve, and I think it's interesting because he's got all his disciples following him. And then when we get to verse 28, he's, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage, and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Why are you stealing a colt? Then you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went on their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. So we'll pick up like how they react to having their cult taken in a second. But think of this when it comes to pass. He, now we're seeing people just serving Jesus. He says, go get the cult. They go get the cult. You got these nameless people that own the cult that when they say the Lord needs it, they're like, here you go. And so you have, we've had a couple examples. The rich man that went away sorrowful and Zacchaeus, the rich man who went away happy. And then you've got these people that own a cult, which makes them upper class in this society, happily giving their resources to the service of the king. And so we definitely get a nuanced, complex idea of what it means to serve the king. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart. It's for people that really want to serve Jesus and be about that business. So this is what some people call the triumphant entry. The reason they call it triumphant is because a Romans had a thing called a triumph. When a general won a battle, they'd come back into Rome and they'd have a triumph, which is a great ceremony or entrance of the, the general. When Caesar came back home from leading the armies, it was the way in which the Caesar would be received by the city and everyone would pay attention to him. Well, Jesus is the king of the Jews and he will be received on this day. So the, the idea that Jesus said this, verse 28, and then he went on ahead, I just want to point out that like, Jesus knows he's getting killed at this point. We hear that in the Gospel of John. He knows that they're plotting to kill him. He knows he's going right into the lion's den. And the fact that he went on ahead implies that as a leader, he goes first. And he goes ahead of his disciples. He's always said to follow him. And he goes up to Jerusalem going right where they know where he's going to go. You got to go all the way back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. 
and Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was on this path. He's known he was on this path from early, early, early on. And we don't, you know, we, we just get this idea way back in chapter 9 that this is his determination, that there's something that he needs to do in Jerusalem. And he's aware of getting betrayed. He's aware of the trial. He's aware of the cross. And we have a God that is not a coward. We have a God that goes walking into things bravely because he knows he needs to. And it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany. These are, these are more than just suburbs. Like suburbs imply like a car that drives out to them. But these are like little villages around Jerusalem. To walk from Bethany, which is on just over the Mount of Olives, probably take you about 30 minutes to walk it. So we're not talking suburbs like the metro. We're talking suburbs like the ancient world. Uh, and the mountain called Olivet, it's called the Mount of Olives because literally it has olive trees all over it. It still does today. Olive trees are, are hard to grow and there's specific spots you can grow them well. Um, whenever you see photos of Jerusalem and they've got like the mount, the temple mount and the city behind it and you can see the wall, that's taken from the Mount of Olives. That's how close we're talking right now. So that this view that they're coming in, that's the view that Jesus would have at this point as he's walking in. When he sends two disciples, it doesn't say which two in this gospel, so we won't dig into that. Um, and, he, and saying to them to go and do this duty, he's just asking them to serve, and they serve. It implies that the disciples have seen what Jesus wanted, and they, they've listened to the parables, and they understand that service to the king is service to the king. And it looks a lot the same. There's a cult there. We may be tempted in the New King James, it says colt, might be tempted to think of a horse. It's not a horse. This is the, word, the Greek word for a donkey. Um, the colt would be a young donkey, or, and, and it says one that's never been sat on. You see this idea that Jesus is making preparations here. Matthew 21 has much more detail on these preparations. But this is a special day. We've never seen Jesus make arrangements before. So this entry to the city of Jerusalem is important, um, and it's, it's, it's essential that it happens on this particular day, which, again, when we did, if you want to go back and listen to the Matthew sermon, I do a lot more detail. I actually walk you through the math. I'm just going to remind you of the math today. But this is a special day in, in Jewish prophecy. Jesus knows that. Um, the work on this temple that Jesus is looking at as he comes down this hill started back in Ezra chapter 1 which we've been studying in the night teachings. This is that temple. It's been modified and expanded on by Herod because Herod thought he was the Prince of Peace or something nutty like that. But at the end of the day, this is the, this is the place, this is the town, and this is the particular day that all prophecy comes together for Jesus Christ. And I think it's kind of neat because we're celebrating Christmas that he incarnated himself. Another side of the Christian message is that he incarnated himself for this particular day. And the arrangements he, he makes are interesting in that he's getting a donkey to ride in on. Not a war stallion, which does exist in the first century, but a humble donkey. And you can see how the world presents a king and you can see how Jesus presents a king. We'll get into that. Um, if you want to, you can flip to Daniel 9. I'll read you the verse so I don't, you know, there's a lot there. But Daniel 9 was written by Daniel on the last year of Babylonian exile. They've been in that Babylon for 70 years, and God speaks to Daniel, and God sends an angel messenger to Daniel, and Daniel's thinking the Messiah is going to come and take them out of Babylon. And he's corrected by the angel. The angel says, this isn't that. You're going to go back and rebuild the temple. There's more time that's going to pass before God's Messiah shows up. And in that correction, the angel says in Daniel 9, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem and tell Messiah the prince, Messiah ruler, seven weeks or seven sevens and 62 sevens or weeks. A week means seven. It doesn't mean a day or a year. It means seven. So God's calendar then starts ticking in Ezra chapter 1. When Cyrus gives the command to go back and rebuild this temple that Jesus is looking at, a prophecy comes through Daniel saying there's going to pass a period of time. And he tells them how much time will pass. And there's all these things. It, for all the end of sin, reconciliation, everlasting righteousness, 
There's like a, a variety of things that will be accomplished and it will be accomplished on this particular day. 69 weeks of years or seven sevens plus 62 sevens equals 69 sevens. That's uh, 483 years. If you multiply it by a Jewish year, that's 360 days times 483. The magic number you'll get for your notes is 173,880 days. God just tells Daniel, count off these days. And there'll be a gap, and then there'll be another seven-year period to end all of time. And the gap has turned out to be about 2,000 years or so. Um, I don't think it'll be too many more. Daniel 9, 26 after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Another way to read, he's going to be killed. And he's going to do it as a sacrifice for others. This is hundreds of years, 483 years before Jesus Christ even shows up on the planet. And now he's appearing or revealing himself to the world on this day that we're reading about right now. This is why I split the chapter. This is just amazing. The first... 49 years will be the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and then there's going to be another 62 weeks or years between that. What that means is we know that Cyrus gave his proclamation on March 14th, 445 B.C., from both Persian records and Jewish records. If you count forward 173,880 days, it's April 6th, 32 A.D. It... it, it it narrows prophecy down to one day, literally. Like if you go like into a pool hall and somebody calls their shot and says, I'll put these five pool balls into the pockets with one shot, you kind of doubt it. You're like, that's crazy. But then when they do it, you understand that they're a master pool player, that they called their shot. And I, I, you look at what's going on here in Luke, and he doesn't dig into it as much as Matthew. Matthew's talking to the Jews who should know this prophecy, but he still emphasizes the importance of the day. This was the day that the Lord had made. When we sing about that, we're talking about this day. Uh, the, the clarity here of God is, goes beyond anything. Like, it is sufficient knowledge for us to have to believe in Messiah on this point alone. Like Jesus literally told us when Messiah would walk into the temple and the city that Nehemiah and Ezra were rebuilding. And he told the day it would happen. So if you're a smart Jew and you've counted your days through the generations, you should be sitting on the city walls waiting to see who walks in the door like a king. Because that's the Messiah according to God's count. So that's the day. And Jesus turns to his two disciples who maybe knew that this was the day. And he just says, get a colt which is great. Get me a colt. I'm riding in. That's Jesus. The colt's tied up. It is, a, it is clearly a king rides into a city, but he takes the most humble of animals to do that. Colts or donkeys were for merchants. They, they weren't necessarily used for kings in this period of time. They were in the Old Testament. So he sticks to that idea. He has no security team. He has no advanced team. Remember earlier in Luke, he sent people out ahead of him to announce his coming? He doesn't do that this time. He comes in and leads the way in doing it. Just no comparison whatsoever to an earthly king. No fanfare, no golden robes, no fancy singers marching alongside, but the singers will show up, as we'll see. And the idea that no one has ever sat on it is this idea of this donkey being a servant to the king with undivided loyalty. He doesn't have two masters. The donkey has one master. And the Lord gets all the authority in this moment. The Roman triumph is a victorious entry. It's also prophetic. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wait a second. Zechariah called that shot too? Not only the day of, but Zechariah calls that the Messiah would be riding on a donkey. There's hundreds of prophecies that get met in Jesus Christ, but on these few days, are, are, there's a, a, a number of them that we know. We know he should have been born in Bethlehem. We know he comes out of Egypt. We know that he lives in the Galilean area, and he comes from a small, he, he actually resides in a place called Nazareth. Like, it narrows down so quickly, even on his birthday. 
but when you come to this point too, like everything, it points to Jesus Christ. There's so much debate today about this, but so I think I'll read the next Zechariah verse too. We have people on the streets saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You've heard this? And it's being debated in the news. Like that's a anti-Semite thing. I think as Bible studiers, we should know that that's a flip of what the Bible says. And, and when they're talking about Messiah coming in on a donkey, Zechariah 9.10 says, He shall speak peace to the nations, not war, peace, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What they've done is taken the word of God and flipped it on its head and started shouting it in the streets in the name of combat. But Jesus had that idea of his dominion being in the name of peace. It's the exact opposite of what Christ proclaimed. And we were told at the end of days that people would do just that. They would flip the truth and turn it into a lie. And then announce it to the world. Luke's readers might not have picked up on the prophecy like Matthew's readers, but we still hear the echoes of this. The Messiah has arrived to claim his territory. And what Luke's readers would have understood is what a triumph looks like. And they would have understood that in a typical triumph, all the armies march into the city ahead of the king. And the climax of it, it's like when you go see a band, the best songs are saved for the encore, right? The best song in a triumph is that Caesar is at the end and everybody just goes crazy when the Caesar comes through the door. Jesus flips that on its head. That's how the world does things. Jesus goes in the door first. And Luke's readers would have picked up on that. Why do they give him the donkey? Because the Lord. It's um, unique in Luke that Jesus at this point teaches his servants to call him Lord. They've called him good teacher. They've called him rabbi. But here we see Luke actually, Jesus tells them, because the Lord has need of it. it there is no doubt here that Jesus considers himself to be the Lord, the, the returning king. And he takes that mantle on, and he takes that mantle on in a way that would cause the Jewish people to want to kill him. If you don't believe Jesus is God, Jewish law says you kill blasphemers. Anyone that says their Lord, God, Almighty, is a blasphemer. So when he does this, and, he said, and he's coming in on the day, and he rides on a Zechariah donkey, he is saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Prince of Peace, I'm God incarnate. And he's making that claim. He's not a good teacher. Good teachers don't claim that they're God. He's not a wise sage. Wise sages don't say foolish things like, I'm God. He's actually the incarnate God that showed up in a manger to the announcement of heavens, that was baptized with the announcement of the heavens. And he's going up to Jerusalem with nothing but a donkey. But he has been announced, he has been told, the Jewish people should be welcoming their king. There's Some people claim that because this donkey was freely given, that it must be, it must be that Jesus arranged this ahead of time. I don't know if you've heard that commentary before. Or this person... You know, it, it could be that they read these chapters and they're like, well, it couldn't be that these people were just serving their Lord. But when you read 18 and 19 and you put this in context, I, I don't know if that works for me anymore. I'm seeing two nameless people just give up their donkey so that Jesus can ride it. And all they're told is the Lord has need and they're like, he can have it. And I think from what we've seen over the last few chapters is that's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach people to do. He wasn't teaching them blind faith. He was teaching them faith that was based on everything he had done. And after three years of ministry, when he says the Lord has need, it's there. The other thing is, some people read this, and another critique of this passage is, well, see, Jesus can't be God because he needs something. And I, need is relative here. Jesus just walked miles to get to Jerusalem. He's been walking since chapter 9. He could probably walk another few verses into town, right? Need is relative here. He needs it because prophecy says the king will ride in on a donkey, and he's claiming that prophecy. But it's not like Jesus has these deep needs. Frankly, Jesus could manifest a donkey out of thin air if he wanted to, but he's just got done teaching for multiple chapters. He's inviting people to serve the king, and he's creating opportunities to do that in his ministry. It hasn't changed today. He's invited you and I to help him with the ministry of sharing his love to people 
and he gives us the opportunity to do that. So need is, is, is consider the need there as one of um, fulfilling prophecy. The Lord has dominion. He can ask for anything that he wants to. And in this sense, I don't think the word need, need here is diminishing the power of God. It's quite the opposite. It's showing that God's invited us to humbly, humbly be part of the ministry. That's what he wants. That's the heart of God and what he wants. He's dressed humbly. He's riding humbly. He comes in. Just an idea, maybe kingship in heaven has nothing to do with glory on earth. And he's modeling for his disciples what it looks like to just serve the king. And, and everything else goes to the side. So, also, here's an, here's an odd thing. There's no response recorded because it's not even important. This is Jesus' day. And so the donkey shows up. But this gets recorded in multiple gospels. Because this is really, to the disciples, this is amazing. Somebody just gave up a donkey without a word. So, they, then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set him on Jesus. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. This would be the outer coat garment. <laughs> Letting go of the things that for two, three chapters he's taught his disciples, you got to just let go of things of this world. So they line the road with their clothes, with palm branches we see in other Gospels, <laughs> so that the way of the Lord is prepared. And then in verse 35 it says, Then they... The, the, the phrase they gets used three times here. This is expression of an excited couple of disciples. They're thrilled with what just happened. Then they brought him to Jesus. They drew their clothes on the, the colt. They set them out. There's just this, I, there's this tone here of, oh my goodness, this is it. This is the day. This is the walk that's going to happen. In verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, he's coming down the hill, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Notice that it's the disciples, not the whole crowd. It's those that have followed Jesus and have, have accepted that he's the Messiah. They start praising the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice and praise God? Likely they're singing the Hallel Psalms from the book of Psalms, which were songs that were sung year after year after year to prepare the Jews to welcome their Messiah. The prophetic Psalms. And they speak of this day. So the, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. I think it's interesting when you got to write with ink on parchment, like words are precious. So for them to say rejoice and praise, you have to ask why both words. And the idea of praise is something that's coming out of us that's an exaltation to the Lord. Rejoice is, is quite the opposite. To rejoice means you start with no joy and then you have joy. So in an, for an oppressed people, rejoicing is how we prepare ourselves to praise. We, we, we let God's joy come into us by being reminded of what he's done, by the prophecies he's fulfilled, by the promises he's made. And when we focus on those things, we become joyful again. We rejoice. And then what comes out is praise. That's the natural response when, you, when you've meditated on God's word. So they rejoice and praise with a loud voice for all the mighty works they've seen. I just think this is one of the major steps for a believer. And we've seen these believers come a long way under Jesus' teaching. When you can take joy even though you don't have any and let that come out as praise, and then you get that third element with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Again, this is not blind faith. They have seen God do things and that's what they remind themselves of, which comes out in praise. Enthusiasm rises. The disciples see that he's embracing this role now. He's the cornerstone of prophecy. The mighty works, not fantasies and tricks, fabrications or theories. They've seen him do everything. He's walked them through what a life of faith looks like. And now there's crowds of people and they just start singing his praise. And they've testified to what they've seen. Loud voices in worship is a testimony that you've seen things that have put joy in your heart. The worst thing is when people do worship and they're faking it. Don't fake it. Just take that time to rejoice before you start to praise. I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes more people sing along in worship time as the worship time goes on, is sometimes that first song, you need to just remember why you're there. 
and soak it in. The mighty works which, which they had seen. Again, we read through the Gospels, we, we've seen amazing things. John adds the detail of palm branches, like I said. Luke simply shows this is a massive event, and Gentiles were included. From Josephus, we know that on this particular Passover, there were three million people in Jerusalem. So it, it, it grows by about six times as everybody comes to the city for this worship. There's an emphatic here. Singing at the top of their lungs is how the loud voice should be translated. They're just cutting loose. Because why hold back? What in this world would prevent you from just singing at the top of your lungs? Verse 38, here's what they sang. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, prince in heaven, glory in the highest. All four Gospels record that Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, is what they sang when they went up the hill. All four of them. And John's usually pretty different than the other three, but this was a significant, the fact that they were singing this song is what sets up the next part of the story. They're singing this one at the top of their lungs because they're excited that Jesus finally is taking on the role of king. And they're singing about the Lord having become salvation, the incarnate of God Almighty Yahweh becoming the salvation for humanity. This is the day of the Messiah singing the Messiah song. I'm going to read you more of Psalm 118 because likely, again, ink is precious here, likely Luke's just giving us verse 38 to tell us which song, but it's a longer psalm. Verse 21 of that psalm, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. I don't think they understand fully that Jesus is the sacrifice. Like they're still in the, mo in the model that this is a, an oxen that you're going to sacrifice. But I think God knew what he was saying. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Who are they praising right now as Jesus goes into the city? Like not just Jesus accepted his deity. His disciples are singing his deity at the top of their lungs. Right? People get upset because like, Jesus never claimed he was God. No, Mr. Gnostic. He absolutely did. And he accepted this praise from his disciples going up the hill. This praise that says, you are my God, sung to Jesus. You, I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. This is what they're singing going up the hill. They recognize him as king, Lord and king. God as king. They've accepted what Jesus has taught, and this is the triumph. He's up in front. The, his soldiers are singing his praise, and Jesus will not offer the sacrifice. That usually comes at the end of the triumph. The Caesar goes up and offers a sacrifice to Zeus or whatever, and that's kind of the, the climax of the whole event is the sacrifice. Well, Jesus isn't going to offer an oxen on the altar, he's going to be the sacrifice. But that's what happens at the end of a triumph. It's not that God hasn't given humans proof. God has given humans overwhelming proof of God's deity and, his, and Jesus incarnate God coming to us for salvation. Some people just don't want to see that. And that's a tough thing because you want to try to show them the evidence of all these things. But what we have here is a record of him fulfilling all of these prophecies to the letter on the day. And God is like, they had my prophets. Like, why, why aren't they in heaven? Because they didn't want to listen to Moses. They didn't want to listen to my prophets. And either one of them could have shown them everything they needed to see. So he's accepting the praises that were written for God alone, incarnate salvation, and the hosannas that come from that. So salvation is hosanna. He's the king marching in a triumph. He tells them to call him Lord, the title that he asks for, and he's God, and that's all confirmed with the spontaneous singing that comes up. That's what gets contested in verse 39. 
And I think it's important for us to understand that context. Again, Luke is writing with an, a generation. He could easily assume all of the people reading his text would have heard of this event, and many of them would have been at that event. They know what song was getting sung. But what we do get in the text is verse 39. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher. They don't call him Lord, and that's the title he's asked for. They call him Teacher. Rebuke your disciples. Why? Because the disciples are the ones calling him God. They're calling him the Lord of salvation, Prince in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Right? They're peace in heaven and glory to the God in the highest. That he comes in the name of the Lord. The Greek there is onoma. Everything the name conveys is the name of the Lord. So if, I, if, 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 if someone went out and said, I come in the name of Tom, it means Tom has given his authority to that person. Right? That's the claim. So when Jesus comes in the name of the Lord, the idea is the family, the title, the authority, the reckoning is all now Jesus's to have and to administer. He comes in the name of the Lord. The, the name, what's interesting in Luke is he doesn't come in the name of David or claiming the throne of David. That's a Matthew thing, right? Speaking to the Jews. But speaking to the Gentiles, he comes as Lord of all. That's what Yahweh claims and what he has. The Pharisees called to him. What's interesting is they still don't get it, right? They, they're calling to him like, get down off of your high donkey, buddy, and, and knock this off. And, and they're threatened by it because they know darn well what day it is. And they know what Jesus is doing here. This is, this is their will that they're expressing. They are not obedient to Jesus Christ. They want the praise. They want to do without the commands of Jesus. They've listened to Jesus and they've rejected him. Nothing irritates godless people more than the voluntary praise of Godful people. Nothing does. Singing God's praises is often silenced by the world. That's the thing they don't want to hear. Then Jesus gives this great answer. He's not denying his lordship here. In verse 40, he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So he's claiming that like all of creation would cry out his name if humans didn't do it. Like Honestly, this is as much of a claim to deity as anything else. That Jesus has authority over the stones too. Now, if the stones, like you could imagine this, like, these are not the rolling stones. These are, these are, but definitely this would be rock music if this happened. If that actually did occur, you would see that. So generally, Jesus has avoided praise for years, but now he's actually accepting the praise because it's time. Sorry. That's all right. Tell him, tell him I'm busy right now. The Bible has passages where nature sings praise. Um, but only to God ever in the Old Testament. The only place that all of creation cries out, it's to the Lord. It's to God Almighty. So this response in verse 40 would set the Pharisees to red-faced rage. Right? This would just absolutely set them off. Psalm 96.11, just one of these examples. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in the fullness thereof, and let the field be joyful and all that is in therein. And and then all the trees of the wood would rejoice. All of the Psalms, that kind of praise always goes to God Almighty, Yahweh. So when Jesus says the stones would cry out, that could be a reference to those. This is the only moment in time where those passages are applied to any kind of human being. So when Jesus does this, honestly, the Pharisees would just be beside themselves. They've got somebody claiming to be Yahweh in front of them. This is the day... There will be rejoicing on this day. All of creation waits for the day. I think this is why we waited so many more years for rock music to appear. Because the people did their job here. There, there, many people, you know, it's interesting. Jesus accepting worship on the day with that song is, is so impressive. And I, honestly, this was a tough thing for me because I'm not by nature a joyful singing person. I'm really not. And one of the things that struck me, I, I always, initially, in my, when I was younger, I thought praise was kind of naive and foolish and silly. Like, why do we open our mouth and sing notes? It seemed kind of ridiculous to me to even do that. But praise as a testimony is truly unique to humanity. 
that it's an expression of our soul that comes out of our mouth and it comes out like a song. And when we do it together and we're generally on key, it sounds magnificent. I think it's one of the, the, the most amazing things in the natural world. And singing, I used to think it was about how you felt. If you felt good, you sang songs. But that's not at all what the Bible presents. The singing of songs is an act of submission and worship to an almighty God. He could ask for a lot of things. In fact, you look at pagan religions, look at the crazy things that we humans think a God would want, right? Self-mutilation, dancing, all sorts of weirdness. But the, with God, he simply wants a song from most of us. Could you just let go of your pride long enough to sing out loud? And the feelings of praise do come with praise, that's true, but the praise isn't for us and it's not about our feelings. The praise is for an almighty God. It's an act of glorifying the king, honoring his works as we ought to do and letting go of our will in order to do it. So the, I think one of the most beautiful things in the world is somebody who sings and they're off key because who cares? They're going to sing anyways. And it's, it, it, honestly, when that starts to happen, you can tell the God, Godful people from the Godless people because the Godless people get irritated by the off-key singer. But some of us just think, man, when you put a few million Christians together in heaven, I'm thinking those off-key people will have their own section and it's going to sound pretty good with everybody else. Praise the Lord that they're just cutting it loose. God made them with ears that don't hear the notes. So he must like the sound of somebody being foolish for his name's sake, just like David. And then what's weird, instead of being joyful, Jesus weeps. Like he, he just gave them the stones will cry out thing and he just starts to cry. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. He's walking up the hill to the Golden Gate, right? He's on that east side of the city looking up and he's just looking up over it. Lou keeps the focus here on Jesus. When it says wept over, in the Greek, that, that's... And like an out loud outburst, can't contain it, visible mourning that's on display for everybody to see. Right? He does everything but rend his clothing in this, in this situation. It's not a weakness that Jesus cries here, but it is an expression of God's hope for his people. And this, he comes as the Prince of Peace to offer salvation. He didn't want a bunch of Pharisees that didn't understand what he was doing. He really wanted the Jewish people to welcome him as the, as the Messiah that he had been promising for 3,000 years. So he says, and again, in verse 42, what he's saying here is in the context of weeping. And, and Luke actually writes this in a way, verse 42 is uniquely not typical Greek writing. It's in fragments. Like he's getting these words out between sobs and Luke is quoting him word for word. If you had known, even you, these are sentence fragments. If you'd only known that this is the day, even you, my Jewish people. But he's not finishing these sentences. He's just getting out half words. Like he's absolutely tore up over what's happening around him. He's got his disciples singing and that's great, but he wanted all of them to come into the kingdom. The heart of God is one that it breaks his heart when people don't recognize him. If, if, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground. Again, a sentence fragment there. They will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. See how important the day is? You didn't get it. And it's just ripping Jesus up. If you'd only known that Jerusalem is not the salvation, Jesus is the salvation. The Babylonian exile group showed this. The, the life that they were to live was to set this temple up for this day. So a, a, type, of, a type of ending here. God gives them another chance to work for this or to do this. All of this Use of the word you, you, your. There's no clauses here. It's just transcription of what's coming out of his mouth. They're actually held accountable for not tending to the prophecy that was given through the mouth of Daniel. Now, if that's true and it breaks God's heart, but these people miss out because it's been hidden from them, verse 42, 
there's far more prophecies about his second coming. And he tells us to be accountable to those prophecies. We should know when he's coming. Not the day or the hour, but we should generally see the signs. And if we're not even bothering to read it, not even taking our precious time to understand what God said through his prophets, it breaks God's heart. He's given us everything we need to have assurance of salvation, but assurance that he's coming back again. So Jesus sees the praise of his disciples, but the challenge of the Pharisees, and it's the lost that break his heart, not the ones that have figured it out, as he's taught us. For the days will come, verse 43 starts a prophecy. Jesus predicts, predicts the destruction of the city. Five parts, embankment, siege, destruction, killing, and leveling. All five of these happen. They're all recorded by Josephus. It doesn't even take a generation. He's looking at what, if they would accepted Jesus as king, God has promised he would protect Jerusalem. But in not accepting Jesus as king, that's going to be, the temple's gone because God needs to send a message that Jesus was the king. And if the people running the temple don't accept him, then the temple needs to go so that people can see clearly what's going on. The story of it I also told when we went through in Matthew, but Titus's soldiers had invaded Jerusalem. They built the embankment and they had surrounded everything and they'd taken neighborhood by neighborhood till all that was left was the Temple Mount. It was the last thing that was saved. And the Jewish people that were not going to leave the city had all gathered and locked themselves in the temple so they couldn't get in. Granite stuff all around. And what they were going to do, Titus's order was, starve them out. But the mob took over. After about five miles of building embankments, because you do that through human labor, and in 10 days they invaded this city, they are at the height of anti-Semitism. They hate the Jewish people that has put them through this much work, these stubborn people. A million Jews get killed. 97,000 of them are taken as slaves. Titus said in his journals, this is the worst carnage he'd ever seen on earth. And this is what Jesus is seeing right now as he looks at the city. Like so many of his children are going to get killed. They refused the laurels of the king because God was there. And then the mob is just insane at this point. One of the soldiers takes a torch, throws it in the window of the temple. The thing burns so hot that the gold melts down into the stone cracks. And all the people inside are killed. That's what Jesus is seeing as he gives this prophecy. And he's naming it in detail. And why is this all going to happen? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't even care. So, again, Luke reveals Jesus in saying this. The visitation is God himself becoming salvation. Jesus is again claiming the Messiah role. Jesus then cleanses the temple. He went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, it's written in Isaiah 56, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Again, he's quoting Isaiah 56 there. there were, what was happening was there's multiple courtyards around the temple. The biggest courtyard was the courtyard of the Gentiles. When God built the temple, the intention was anybody could go in and give praise to Yahweh. But the Jews had become so ethnocentric that they really pushed Gentiles away. Look at how they treat Samaritans. And Romans, there's a lot of hate built up in the first century. So the courtyard of the Gentiles is just kind of unused. And for Jesus, that doesn't excuse the fact that then they started using that territory for merchants to come in and sell sacrifices. It says a den of thieves because they would rip people off. Just like when you go to a theme park and they charge you $10 for a lemonade. It was the same kind of deal. This was premier territory you didn't have to walk your animals up to make your sacrifice. You could just buy them there and have them be sacrificed and know that they were approved by the priests. And so this idea of having a perfect lamb was something that the, the priests used to get more money for the temple. And they were ripping people off. So when, God, when Jesus clears them out, it's likely because, we're going to see in the next verse, he wanted a spot to teach where there weren't a bunch of merchants interrupting the teaching. So he kind of demanded that they leave, they get out of there, and he probably set up to do it. So there's no indication that he really changed the culture of the temple, but he was going to say, I'm going to use the courtyard for what it was meant for. I'm going to teach and I'm going to pray here. And so 
those that were brought in. Also note it says those who bought and sold. So it's not just the merchants that are held accountable here, it's the people that use those merchants. For me, this is convicting when it comes to how we treat Sundays. It's not just the people that are doing business on Sunday, it's the people that give them their business on Sundays. And so when God says to like keep a day sacred, I think he means it. So you see Jesus talking like this, there is a accountability that comes for people that are actually participating in this scam that's going on in the temple. They should have gone through the work and sacrifice. And yeah, it's a pain to walk your lamb from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem just to make a sacrifice. But I think that was the whole point. So they're not putting in the work or the time. They're just using their money and using it to get by. We also got through in chapter 18 teachings on money and how, how closely we should cling to it. And so when they're using this or they're doing this, Jesus is showing there was a way that he meant for it to be that they're ignoring. Um, Jesus looks at this as generally distasteful. Few, if any, Gentiles wanted to be praying to Yahweh because of how rigid these Pharisees were. There were few Jews that wanted to be participating in Judaism because of how rigid these Pharisees were. There's whole crowds of people following Jesus simply because he opens up the door. So the marketplace um, being in a sanctified area, um, Luke writes this, I think, to show the Gentiles that he's writing to that Jesus was actually upset with how they were treated by the religious elite. Jesus wasn't okay with that treatment. The exclusion of Gentiles was not God's intention. It wasn't his will. It was the will of the religious experts as to what counted and what didn't. Haggai 2.7, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Again, Haggai prophesied what this building was for. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for all nations. And the idea that Messiah would come, he wasn't just coming for the Jews, he's coming for everybody. You can see where Luke would put that in as he's writing to a Gentile um, funder of this project because he was a historian. People often make the mistake that when humans sin, that that must be God's will somehow. And I think we see a good example of this. People blaming God for things that God didn't ordain and ask for. And the fact that God gives us free will does not necessarily mean he's accountable for everything humans do. It does mean that he's, he's responsible for judging and holding everyone to account at a time that he sees fit. And he's promised that he will do that. So when we blame God for works that he hasn't contained, we could also say, what, if, what would the world be like if God didn't contain some of the evil in it? Would we be sitting here in a peaceful place to study his word? And so what would... How, what are the things, the things we don't know is when God has stepped in to contain evil. But here he's a, there's this evil allowance and Jesus comes up against it, setting a boundary with these people. You shouldn't be selling in the temple courtyard. And then you would say, but God has allowed this for so long. He didn't fry these people. And part of that is God allowing free will. He does allow people to make choices. But then people will use those choices and hold it against God. Jesus is seen as chasing people out here. With verse 47, it strongly implies he didn't want the noise during Bible study. Where God contains evil is in the space where God's people are going to worship and in the space where God's people are going to pray and in the space where God's people are going to study the Word of God. That's where God sets a boundary. And, he's, and he protects and he puts a hedge around those kinds of things. So exercising authority in this instance um, with willing people that want to hear the, the Word and with the servants that are there serving him. This has been a theme throughout all of Luke, is God's people doing for God what God has asked. What did Jesus do after clearing out the thieves? Well, he started Bible studies, daily Bible studies. This feast period is a week. And so he started teaching, verse 47, he started teaching daily in the temple. What would it be like to be at a Jesus Bible study? First of all, I think he'd be a lot better than me. Because he's walking people through his own word and what he wrote and showing people all the connections. And it, to teach daily implies he was going all day, right? People would bring him a water, not just a colt, but they would bring him things to refresh him. And, or he would take a little break, he'd move out some of the merchants that started creeping back in, and then he would be back to Bible study. And the crowds start to gather. Verse 47, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. 
I hope that's clear at this point in the gospel why they want to destroy him. He's claimed he's God and then he starts teaching. Verse 46, they're unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. People were showing up to hear this Jesus teach. So as long as he has breath in his lungs, he knows they're going to kill him. What does he do with the time where he has made himself available after the death warrant went out? What he uses his precious last minutes for is to teach God's word and disciple people. Think of the sacrifice of that. Like he could be using this to eat his favorite foods. He could be hanging out with his best friends. But what he does is he walks up to the temple every single day and teaches the word in front of the people that already have a death warrant on his head. This is just, first of all, gutsy. We follow a king that is not scared of anybody. But second of all, just powerful. So he's probably teaching the prophecies of his second coming, of the kingdom of God, everything Luke has already written. He's teaching everybody these things. He's, do your worst. He's not afraid. He's not fighting them. He's not, pick, he's not arguing with them. He's just teaching what God has said. And all the people were attentive. He's actually making progress with people. He's reasoning from the word of God, showing God's will and explaining the kingdom. I want to do just a few verses in Luke 20 because it starts with now it happened. It's in the middle of this teaching on one of those days, don't get the specific, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. Remember Matthew showed each group of leaders trying to confound him and none of them, he just handled all of them. So Matthew shows that in a very Jewish way. Luke just summarizes it and says, the priests, the scribes, the elders, they all are confronting him. So again, Matthew's got that fleshed out. And they spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is, who is he who gave you this authority? And the he there should be lowercase. They're not mentioning God there. They're thinking humans give authority to teach God's word. So Jesus shows up. He's a carpenter by trade. He's probably dressed like a commoner. He has no degree. He has no training. He has no rabbi certificate. He hasn't even watched YouTube clips. Yet he's teaching God's word like he knows it backwards and forward. Authority here implies, the question implies that he's breaking the law, that he's doing something outside of human authority that he needs permission to teach the Bible. And likely there, it could involve him kicking the merchants out, but it says on one of those days. So he's been kicking merchants out for at least a couple days now. The question is, how, why are you teaching the word and doing it here? This is, by the way, he's doing what the priests should have done according to the Old Testament commands. They were commanded to teach God's word in this courtyard. So he's actually stepping in, doing what they should have been doing by God's authority. So when the proper authority doesn't do its job, Jesus steps in and takes over. And frankly, like this works with people. I call it the principle walk. If you like, there's people standing at the gate and you want to just get in, but you don't want to deal with them. What you do is you walk like you own the place, you know, and you just walk in like you're the principal and people are just like, Oh, there's the principal. Okay. And you just kind of walk through and most people won't even stop you when you do that. You can't carry that in there. Oh, I can. I just walk like I know what I'm doing with me. I'm faking it with Jesus. It was real. He did own the place. And so he's coming in like he owns the place, and it takes a couple days for anybody to get up the guts to challenge him. And Luke focuses in on this issue of authority, right? There's a guy, if you've seen the movie Catch Me, if you, if, if you can, have you ever seen that? There's a guy named Frank Ab Abagnale Jr. who pretended to be things, and he did this authority thing. He successfully performed cons that were worth millions of dollars by pretending he was an airline pilot and flying planes. He would get the uniform, he'd walk in like it was his job, and he would take the plane off and fly it and, and start getting paid for it. Never had a license, just looked up how to fly a plane. He also pretended he was a doctor in Georgia, and he also pretended he was a lawyer in Louisiana. Never had the degree, never had the title. Think about it, how many times do you actually ask somebody to show you their degree? that piece of paper you get from the university. So if they sound like they know what they're doing and they talk like they know what they're doing, nobody really checks on those things. That's why it takes a couple days for them to be like, well, he sounds like he's a priest. 
He talks like he knows what he's doing. So, like, it took a while. Most people just accept when somebody takes the lead because they don't want to be in the lead themselves. Jesus is not a fake. He actually has the authority, and he acts accordingly. Jesus doesn't try to debate these people. The debate comes to him. They have two demands, looking carefully at these verses. By what authority and who gave the authority? What and who are the two demands that Luke presents? The answer here is not to be contrary to them. He's not trying to argue with them, but he does reveal the motives of the speakers. So this is part of the triumphant entry, is that you come in and people are like, wait, you're not really the Caesar. So this is him proving that he is the king. He's the Lord. And the true king is not obligated to explain themselves to inferiors. And Jesus acts like the Lord because he doesn't explain himself to these inferiors. And he's actually assumed that role, or especially people that didn't know the day and are ignorant of him. Like he's not going to bother with these people. So he answers and says to them in verse 3, I will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? So one of the ways you would, do, you would test a rabbi is you'd ask them a question that was a confounding question from the Bible. We still do this today. Are you open theist or are you Calvinist? Are you Arminian? Right? Or are you pre-trib or post-trib or anti-trib or middle-trib middle or Coca-Cola trib? And we throw these questions at people to test their expertise. This is what they would do back then too. So Jesus not only doesn't answer them their question, he actually throws a question at them. Which in the dynamic in the first century, he's for one second, he's treating them like the rabbis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you something. Because if you're the authority that can ask me these questions, you should be able to answer a question of mine. And, 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 he, and he gives them fair chance to take their authority. So the idea of John the Baptist is an interesting one. The people love John the Baptist, but he is killed by the Romans. So the Jews should be infuriated that the Romans killed one of their own. And John preached that the Messiah had arrived, and he also taught that Jesus was the Messiah, and he told all his followers to go follow Jesus. So is John from God or not? Because John told everybody that I was the Messiah. So if John was from heaven, this act answers the two questions. The, the what is the authority of Messiah, and the who is proclaimed by John by the word of God. If John's from God, then it's God that gave Jesus the authority. If you were at the baptism, you would have seen it yourself. If John was from men, the authority then is from men. If, by, if John, however, is from God, the authority comes directly from God. If, if, God's, if John's from men, then all the baptisms he gave were for false baptisms. And, and there's a ton of people in this crowd that were baptized by John the Baptist. He, he baptized thousands. So if the authorities accept John, they make the crowd happy. If they don't accept John, they're going to make the crowd upset. But the true answer is John was from God. And they reasoned among themselves. This is, I, I, you know, I've said this when we did other Gospels. The fact that they don't go back to the temple and use the Urim and the Thummim on a yes and no question is confounding because that's what they should have done if they don't know the answer. But they do know the answer. And in verse 5, they're reasoning among themselves because they know the right answer, but they, they don't want to give it because they're scared of people. Their authority then comes from people. Whatever you're scared of is what you worship. And they're worshiping political attention. And in doing this, they're not priests of the Most High God. They don't belong in that temple. So they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because he said that he was Messiah. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. Why would you say he's a prophet? Because he was. He's the greatest that the world had seen, according to Jesus. Their concern then is pride and what people think that shows what authority they are acting under. It's carnal thinking. And they put on display their carnal thinking for everybody in the crowd. I don't think Jesus is trying to do gotcha stuff with them. He's just showing everybody. These guys are fake. They wear the robes, but they don't have the heart. They're not men of God. They're not bold like John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't care what anybody thought of him. He has eaten locusts and you know, the world's first hippie. You know, he's just out there living on nature, eating granola locusts and things like that. And he didn't care what the priests thought about him. And the people loved him for it. 
the fact that they go among themselves. I think evil works this way sometimes. If they can only convince each other that they're right, then they think they're right. Well, I got a buddy who says this, or I know somebody who says this. I heard a pastor say this once. Evil will gather unto itself leadership that agrees with it. And that's exactly what's here. Verse 7, so they answered that they did not know where it was from. They don't know. That's a short and conclusive answer for a rabbi that should know all the answers. If you don't know the answer, you're not a rabbi. You don't deserve the role. They literally step down from authority in verse 7 because they don't want to anger people. And by abdicating authority, Jesus doesn't owe them an answer anymore. So these are the best the temple has to offer. So I want to, Luke focuses on authority, I do too. If the best the temple has to offer are stumped, it means the temple is busted. If the best the temple has to offer is stumped, it means the temple is busted. It doesn't work anymore. The, the law can't go past a certain point. So they can look at the law all they want, but they don't. They can't answer for grace. They can't answer for Jesus. They can't answer for everything that's coming. The fear and the politics cripple them, and in doing that, the entire Mosaic priest system just failed in front of Jesus. And everybody is there to see it. You could hear, you probably could have heard a pin drop when this happened. You know, except for the merchants on the other side of the courtyard still making noise. So, and I'll end on verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I don't owe you an explanation. The king has arrived. God has shown up. The authority comes straight from God. If you can't discern and recognize God's work, you Pharisees are not in a position of authority. You don't see God. You shouldn't be telling people about God. For the humble... The willing, the interested, Jesus literally stopped his trip to, to be with Zacchaeus and to help the blind man. He'll go out of his way to extend friendship to people that are humble. If you think I'm not good enough from God, that you're, that's step one to being his best friend. And he offers you friendship just like he did Zacchaeus. For the arrogant and the belligerent and the accusers, he just doesn't have the time of day for those people. And you guys, none of us should have the time of day for those people. They think they know everything. They know nothing. His authority has been on display. It's been public. It's been clear. He has healed people. He has raised people from the dead. He has fixed souls. He has re restored people. He doesn't need to explain himself. It also powerfully demonstrates to the crowd that they don't have to answer to these people either. He rips away the authority. And in not answering that question, all these people say, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites and a bunch of fakes. Jesus again leads the way. And he leads the ways for his disciples. They do not owe anything to the Pharisee system. And his followers will walk away from that temple and the temple system because God has shown them the way to do that. And it doesn't mean that the law in Moses wasn't good. Like read Romans. They do a really good explanation of how essential that system was to prepare them to see what Jesus did for them and the way in which that his sacrifice was for our sins. If we walk towards Jesus the way that he's leading us and we choose Jesus, we're actually fulfilling all of the requirements of the law to the letter. And when we walk boldly in following Jesus and we study his word, we don't need permission from people to do that. You know, it, it's interesting. The first year we did this Bible study, how many people were like, well, who are, you, who are you to do a Bible study? And I'm like, I know exactly, right? Who am I to do a Bible study? You know, and since then I've been ordained and, and to be official or something, but nothing special happened the next Sunday after I got a piece of paper. Either I'm faithfully teaching God's word or I'm not. And, and, and in that sense, we don't need the temple building. We don't, and I was just thinking of just our family fellowship that we have, how awesome it is to get to meet people and walk through life with them for a few years. What a blessing that is. We don't need high priests to give us permission to do that. Thank God we don't need high priests. That's the gift that Jesus came to earth to give us. We're not bound by the law, but we can live in grace because even though we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we can be redeemed because he became our sacrifice. And he did it properly according to the law. He marched in as a Lord and he gave himself a sacrifice for our sins to please God and make us right with God.
The human traditions can live on. Judaism still exists, right? The human traditions just keep cranking over and over and over again. And even Christians have built up their own silly traditions that just keep cranking forever and ever because they, what tradition does is it allows us to forget that it's our heart that matters. That's the thing we need to follow the Lord with. If the glory of God is going to be honored, even by stones, he's going to hand it off to Gentiles because the temple system forgot the day of his arrival. And I just hope for all of us, we're not in that crowd. We don't, we know the signs of our times. We know what God's expected of us. And we're waiting anxiously for our king to return. And the next time he comes, he won't come as a baby. And he won't be in a manger. He'll come as a conquering king with all authority, all dominion, and all power. 